The following Agio-supported podcast is intended for informational and educational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice. Please speak with your healthcare professional before making any treatment decisions. The guests on today's show were paid to participate in this podcast. Welcome to ThalPals, the Alpha Beta Revolution. Whether you're a thalassemia patient, a caregiver, a partner, or provider, this podcast is meant for you. I'm your host, Dr. Kevin Kuo. And I'm your co-host, Larice Levine. The Alpha Beta Revolution will strive to provide listeners with critical education, the latest scientific updates, voices from the greater global community of people who are impacted by thalassemia. I have the honor of introducing Dr. Andrula Eleutherio, the Executive Director of the Thalassemia International Federation. She's been instrumental in bringing thalassemia to the global community, Her tireless advocacy efforts for patients around the world are seen daily at bedside and in advocacy. Every time there's something going on in Europe, Dr. Eleftherio is there. It's an honor for us to speak to her today. Larissa, thank you so much for your kind words. And um, it gives me a pleasure and an honor to participate in this meeting. And I would like on behalf of Chief to thank Agios and very importantly, Dr. Kevin, And it's my privilege to share this interaction with Dr. Khaled Musalam. Yes, indeed, I'm the Executive Director of Thalassemia International Federation since 2005, and it has been a great honor when this post was offered to me. My background is a virologist, microbiologist by university graduation, and I've been the director of the Cyprus Collaborating Thalassemia Center of World Health Organization for a number of years. So a combination of science and advocacy have been my two elements in actually working for Thalassemia International Federation. It's my privilege to be here with you. The privilege is all ours, Dr. Eleutherio and Loris. We have another guest here with Dr. Khalid Musalam. He is the Chief Research Officer at the Bergeau Hospital at Bergeau Medical City in Abu Dhabi, UAE. But Dr. Musalam is better known as the face of thalassemia. He is well known in the thalassemia community and all the major developments in thalassemia, Dr. Musalam has a, had a hand in it. Along with Dr. Tahir and Dr. Capellini, I would say they're the trifecta of the voice of thalassemia. Thank you, Kevin, for the introduction. It's my pleasure to be here and discuss the guidelines with you further. As I wear many hats in the medical community, but one constant is my interest and passion to advance knowledge on thalassemia syndromes and to support novel drug developments to address unmet needs. And hopefully today uh, we can see how that reflected in the new management guidelines. So looking forward to our discussion. Thank you, Dr. Musalam. As we all know, the new Thalassemia International Foundation uh, guidelines on non-transfusion-dependent thalassemia will be published. And of course, in addition to content, which we can all read online, and it's disseminated worldwide, what we want to do, Larissa and I, today is to dive into the why and into the how of the guideline. Dr. Eleftherio, what is TIF's history with the Thalassemia Management Guidelines? How did it start and has the process evolved at all over time? Thank you for this question. Thalassemia International Federation, as you probably, most of you, was established back in 1985, exactly to promote the rights of patients with these disorders across the world. The vision was and still is to 
provide support to the government, to the healthcare professionals, to patients and the patient community altogether to have an equal access to quality health, social and other care. In this context, one of the mandates of TIF was to provide reliable and regularly updated knowledge and education to the patients and their families, but also to the healthcare professionals, because without accurate and reliable knowledge of the treating physicians, the benefit to the patients would be very limited value or a very limited extent. Therefore, in the early years, we were looking for ways and tools to actually put together all the available knowledge and published information on how best to treat patients with transfusion-dependent thalassemia, because that was the thalassemia that was mostly studied in the very early years when TIF was established in an attempt to prevent the development of severe medical complications and premature death to these patients if left unaddressed or suboptimally managed. And in the early years of 1980s and 1990s, there was available information on how best to treat these patients to have longer survival, social integration, better quality of life, but this information was coming only from a few countries of the southern European side of the world, mainly of the Mediterranean countries, who had recognized the immense medical, public health, social and economic repercussions of this disease, if not appropriately prevented and managed. Therefore, the group of patients and parents in 1986 plus a small group of physicians decided to develop this and establish this federation and put together all this knowledge and experiences of these countries and see how to help the other patients all over the world. Because by that time, remember 1985, 1990s, the World Health Organization had already recognized and we already knew that thalassemia was not geographically confined but was occurring widely across the world. So this group of people that established TIF actually wanted to produce some kind of tool to help the others around the world in the developing economies, in the poor healthcare systems, so that people could benefit of what these Mediterranean country people benefited. Therefore, they thought of putting the available knowledge together in a textbook, in a kind of guiding information referred to in 1999 as the guidelines for transfusion dependent health. And of course, these guidelines were regularly updated and upgraded until today by international experts. This was the beginning of how TIFF gathered and decided to develop guidelines. Remember, please, that thalassemia and other members of this hemoglobinopathy family or hemoglobin disorders family were considered as a rare disease in countries of the Western world. For example, in Western Europe, Central Europe, United States, North America, was considered as a rare disease and as such, and a non-malignant hematological disease. 
And as such, the scientific focus was very confined on building guidelines. And TIFF took that advantage of the confined interest of the world in a non-malignant hematological disease and developed the first guidelines. Since then, until this day, Loris and distinguished members of this panel, the Thalassemia International Federation is the only patient-oriented organization that is actually developing guidelines. And we are so grateful and indebted to people like Dr. Khaled Musala, Ali Tahia, Nika Gabellini, John Porter, and others that have actually contributed initially when the knowledge was very confined to gather all this information. From the transfusion-dependent thalassemia guidelines, of course, we go to the next step, and perhaps if I am to continue, I will talk about the non-transfusion dependent, unless Khaled wants to intervene in this, and then we continue to the non-transfusion dependent beta thalassemia guidelines. Agios is a biopharmaceutical company that's fueled by connections with patient communities, healthcare professionals, patients, and each other. Building on these connections and the company's unmatched leadership in the field of cellular metabolism, Agios is pioneering therapies of genetically defined diseases, a broad group of rare and more common diseases that are typically severe and life-threatening. Near-term, Agios is focusing on hemolytic and acquired anemias, including sickle cell disease, pyruvate kinase, or PK deficiency, and thalassemia. To learn more, visit agios.com. That's A-G-I-O-S dot com. So we covered the percentage of the patients who required lifelong transfusions, chelation, and other treatment, the clinically severe forms. But of course, and certainly, in the meantime, epidemiological work, but also clinical observations, grassroots work of TIF in the various countries, the work of World Health Organization and other epidemiology academics have documented and have demonstrated that there were other forms of thalassemia and other hemoglobin disorders that although they were believed to be clinically less important and therefore not diagnosed in the early ages as the severe forms of the transfusion-dependent thalassemia, at some stage in their lives, they developed severe medical complications and some of them could lead to dependence on transfusion. So Thalassemia International Federation started to be concerned, as well as the treating physicians around the world, because they were receiving patients with thalassemia at a later stage in their lives with already established significant medical complications. And there was a huge concern of how to address these patients who were not early diagnosed and regularly monitored in centers and specialized hospitals. And this population is huge. In fact, in the absence of accurate epidemiological data and micromapping in a lot of countries, we believe that these numbers that we are seeing about thalassemia and other hemoglobin disorders are grossly underestimated. In fact, the so-called 
less clinically significant, which in the recent years have been named as non-transfusion-dependent thalassemia, VITA and alpha later on. We'll talk a little bit about alpha. In fact, their prevalence is very high in some countries with huge populations. And any estimations and data and reporting of the disease burden of hemoglobin disorders is really grossly underestimated because we do not take into account this population with the so-called less clinically severe forms, which in fact are greater in numbers. And of course, in the absence of national registry, regional, national, or international. It makes our work and estimations on the contribution of this to disease burden extremely difficult. And one of the jobs and activities and mission of TIV is to promote the registry so that we have accurate data to make us feel accurate about the contribution of this to disease burden. Therefore, now we are very privileged that Three important, significant friends of TIF, collaborators of TIF, have put together all this important published information, clinical observations, deliverables of research work, Khaled, Nika Gabellini, and Ali Tucker, into a textbook. And that is a most valuable tool today for giving knowledge, giving the power giving the competency to the treating physicians to address this huge population of the so-called less clinically significant, which a percentage of them, which we really don't know yet, it may be a very large percentage, need to be carefully addressed from the beginning, from the early diagnosed cases, and address their medical complications. This book is a very special tool for us, a most valuable tool for the work for improving the quality care of thousands, of hundreds of thousands of patients across the world. It is a doctor's friendly, I would call it, allow me, book because it is evidence-based and also algorithm and protocol-based description, which makes the life and work of the treating physicians easier. I could say a lot, but I think I'll give the floor to one of the major authors that I admire his writing and his passion, Dr. Khaled Musalam. I thank you on behalf of the global thalassemia family for producing this important tool along with the other eminent scientists. Thank you so much, Dr. Andrula. It's always a pleasure to, to support your mission in this way. So in that regard, Khalid, do you want to tell us more about how you and your colleagues developed the guideline? Can you take us through that? Yeah, definitely. So we just need to be mindful here that thalassemia is a very special and unique disease in terms of its complexity, but more so on the availability of evidence about the disease. And similar to what Dr. Andrula was saying, most of the evidence around this subgroup of patients with thalassemia, the non-transfusion dependent thalassemia patients, the evidence on this group of patients started emerging, I would say, no more than 10, 15 years back. Definitely, there were a lot of studies on patients um, with thalassemia intermedia, hemoglobin E-beta thalassemia in the past. But looking at them as a group with specific unmet needs, looking at the risk factors of the disease, this has been more recent work than 
what we know about transfusion-dependent forms. And it all started, I would say, in the 10-15 years ago when we started finding unique observation in a few subset of patients in the clinics, primarily where I was working between the clinics of Professor Ali Toher and Professor Maria Cappellini in Italy, where we started seeing that these patients have a certain set of morbidities at a high prevalence, but also at the same time that are a little bit different from what we're used to see in transfusion-dependent forms. So it wasn't the classic iron-related heart failure or liver disease or endocrinopathies. It was more vascular disease, thrombotic events, pulmonary hypertension, extramedullary hematopoiesis, more or less complications that we haven't been seeing at such frequency in transfused patients. So that took us on a research journey to actually try to build the evidence in as much of a systematic way as possible. So first we started gathering up as many experts as we can around us, mainly in the Middle East, Asia and Europe, to try to see if what we're seeing in few of the clinics in both countries, in Italy and Lebanon, is actually a shared vision observation in other countries, and it was the case. The first study we started with was the optimal care study, where the main aim of that study was just to look at it in a descriptive way, what are the complications, their prevalence, and the key management profiles for those patients. And it was very interesting to see that the same we saw in few countries is actually a shared observation across the region of high rates of thrombotic disease, pulmonary hypertension, and few complications that we didn't acknowledge before as complications related to thalassemia. And the next phase was to conduct as many observational and cohort and longer term studies, whether retrospective or prospective, to be able to understand what are those risk factors that are associated with such complications. And I would say across the last 10 years, we have uncovered so many of those first significant role of iron overload, even in those patients that are not receiving transfusion, that's accumulating probably in a different pathway and mechanism than transfusional iron overload, but it eventually is leading to iron overload-related morbidities like hepatic disease and even cirrhosis and cancer in the liver, as well as a role of ineffective erythropoiesis and anemia, those key hallmarks of the disease that are not being balanced by exogenous transfusions. So they remain in play and they lead to complications over the long term in those patients. And that all started pooling into looking into options for managing patients, either with conventional therapies, with iron chelators that were already available for TDT patients, and even considering transfusion in some of these patients with complications, but also to more novel therapies that are emerging now or in development that are also looking at addressing ineffective erythropoiesis and iron. And the main portal that we were looking into to be able to share all of this new knowledge was definitely the guidelines. And that's where we collaborated with TIFF, with Dr. Andrula's guidance, because there has been already experience in how to put together a guideline based on the TDT or transfusion-dependent thalassemia experience. And we wanted, we, we felt at least in 2013, when we started the first version, that we have enough robust amount of data now so that we can speak with evidence and not only with expert opinion. That said, the guidelines still have in many parts some gaps where clinical trials are not available, data is not ready yet, and that's where we rely on expert opinion. So this is, let's say, the scope of content where it's coming from. In terms of technically how we put that all together, we definitely do more of a systematic review of the literature for each of the topics of interest that we as editors agree on in an outline, and then start analyzing this evidence, putting it in the right context, in the right place. And as Dr. Andrulla said, we didn't want to just offer a book chapter that people can go back to reviews for, 
we wanted to link the evidence to practice. We link it to how does this evidence relate to the management of patients? How should it do that? And where evidence is not actually clear, where we don't have level A or level B evidence, clinical trials or meta-analysis, what do we as experts at uh, specifically in the clinics of Professor Tahar and Cappellini that reflect management in two continents or two contexts, to be able to give some practical guidance on where evidence is lacking, what is the expert opinion saying and how to manage patients. And that's practically how we did it. And in many instances, obviously, we are very privileged to have a very good network of colleagues, as a hematologist and also from different specialties around internal medicine and surgery even, that for some instances we had to consult with just to ensure that our understanding of specific aspects of secondary morbidities are in line with what they see also in day-to-day management of patients. Thank you, Dr. Musalam. You mentioned how you and your colleagues were at the forefront of developing the evidence because you saw there was a lack of it. And the previous guideline in NTTT was published in 2013, and so it's been a decade since then. What has changed between the last version and this version? So we had a version 2, edition 2 in 2017, but I would say that was a minor, just an update. This one was a bit of a more of a major update. And it's basically because in the last, I would say, four to five years, there is an accumulation of clinical observational studies that shed more light on the roles of anemia and ineffective erythropoiesis against morbidity and mortality. In, in NTDT, as well as the development of several novel therapies, some that have been already approved in Europe and some that are on the way, so that in advanced development. So we started looking at the guidelines in a different way. In the older version, you would see that we divided the chapters based on available treatments. So you would see a chapter on transfusion, another on iron chelation, another on splenectomy. This time around, we decided to focus on the actual pathophysiologies themselves and how any management option should be orchestrated around the pathophysiology. So we have a chapter on anemia and ineffective erythropoiesis, a chapter on iron overload. And probably the chapter on anemia and ineffective erythropoiesis is the one with most updates because we are sharing all of this new information that's changing our mindset on how we should consider anemia, which is a marker of ineffective erythropoiesis in this patient population, and how we can go about managing that, whether it's with conventional therapies or with up-and-coming novel therapies. So it's more or less the same content that's updated, but looking at the disease from a different way that we're targeting, we're not just treating the patients with whatever is available, we're looking at what the patients actually need and then deciding on the management that is ideal to them. Or if there is a clear gap, we're highlighting strongly to push the medical community in the direction of further development for things that are still having gaps in management. Thank you very much, Dr. Mosalam. I'm just going to jump back to these important guidelines and how they get to patients and their doctors. Dr. Eleftheriou, can you talk a little bit about how TIFF disseminates the literature, the books, gets the word out? I know that TPAG is updated and there's patients on the ground, but could you tell us, walk us through that process, please? Indeed, the purpose is not to have a book on the shelf, but to have the book where it belongs. First to the healthcare professionals, but also the patient community has to have knowledge that new guidelines are on it. And TIF has a long history of communication and a very extensive network across more than 60 countries of the world. 
And the communication is not only with healthcare professionals, but also with policymakers, decision makers, and governments, ministries of health, competent health authorities, because we believe that it is a strong tool in the hands of the doctors and the treating physicians. The patients need to know because we need strong advocacy on behalf of the patients that there is better quality care for us now, take attention but without policy decisions and recommendations and support of treatment to the healthcare professionals, this cannot become a reality and cannot be implemented. Therefore, our communication and distribution of this very important tool is multiple and goes to all sides and all three phases from the grassroots, from the patient's parent to the healthcare professionals, treating reference centers, but also governments. Social media, of course, is an important way of putting through newsletters and our communication. We are delivering this news, but also in published, in a published way. We work with scientists like Khaled Musalam and others on how to integrate this into published literature. And of course, it is very important to have an ongoing communication with these communities because it needs a change of because we are going from transfusion-dependent thalassemia guidelines that everybody now knows about. And one of the activities of TIF that we can safely state it had an impact in the world was these guidelines we started in 1999 and we are continually updating and upgrading. So people have to realize that, as Dr. Musalam has very comprehensively stated, the immense genetic variability of these diseases with an equally immense clinical variability and the differences in the clinical symptom make it almost imperative for the treating physicians to know that the medical complications and the risks in these patients may be different and differently addressed than the transfusion-dependent thalassemia. Therefore, it does require a little bit of interaction and a different advocacy for people to know now that there are guidelines for this population, for these patients. And we are very much anticipating the completion of the other guidelines of the non-transfusion-dependent guidelines, alpha thalassemia, which is also being developed by a group of experts to complete this spectrum of the non-transfusion-dependent which, as, of course, Dr. Musalam said, a lot of them may end up with transfusion dependency, but start off perhaps clinically less significant. So this is the kind of how we're going to go about, and we are ongoing. There is an ongoing effort to distribute this, and we have the International Conference, of course, in November. We are going to have a whole session and books with us to distribute in our events, the guidelines, published guidelines. Just for our listeners, and to be clear, any patient, any physician can contact TIFF and get a copy of the guidelines. Absolutely, Loris. is of course, on the website, is everywhere. But we are offering this since the very early years of the establishment of our federation as a free of charge service to a patient community. Write to us, send us a message. Ask your questions. We are there to send this. It's a free of charge service for a patient, wherever they may be. So a question to both Dr. Musalam and also to Dr. Eleutherio. What excites you the most about 
the current guideline? I could start with that. Definitely with a note that my answer could be biased because I'm one of the editors. But definitely, I think being a third edition, it actually gave us a chance to see how the first and second edition were viewed and, let's say, taken and considered by the community earlier. So we understood what works and what not, what was easy to follow and what not. One example uh, I can give you is the way we distinguish even TDT and NTDT, the non-transfusion and transfusion-dependent thalassemia. If you look at that version or first edition, it was a very complicated, long text of how we describe it. Now we made it more practical, more easy, because we need to understand that in many parts of the world, it's not necessarily the expert hematologist or even the hematologist that's taking care of the patients. Sometimes they're taken care of by general physicians or pediatricians. So we wanted to have some sort of language that's fit for all. So if you're a thalassemia expert or a general practitioner, the guidelines will still be practical for you. So The fact that we were able to change it to a tool that's fit for all, and even in many chapters, the language is fit for non-physicians, for any healthcare allied practitioners. I think that's one success factor for this guideline, which I hope will mean that it's uptake. We don't have actual measures of how much the guidelines are being adopted. I think that's one thing we would need to look into with TIFF as well at some point. But I think the more easy, the more practical and the more relevant the guidelines are, it naturally should improve adoption and ensure that if you are a patient in any part of the world, you're going to be receiving the same treatment, obviously provided there is enough access to the tools that the physician has to manage you with. But in terms of concept and approach to management, the aim of the guideline is not only to educate, but also to standardize management so that we can make sure that all patients are being optimally treated. I think Dr. Musalam said it all, of course. And this book speaks for all. And we would like to see how we can get the impact across the world in accessing and in implementing and in adopting these guidelines. Of course, although we have no measures, as Dr. Musalam has just said, even for the TDD guidelines, but going across the world and across the conferences and across the countries and doctors saying that your pre-transfusion hemoglobin need to be over 9.5, it says it all. Because this is a kind of recommendation that came in 1999 in the first guidelines. Using pre-transfusion hemoglobin levels or using uh, bedside filtration or pre-storage filtration, everybody talks about these are the recommendations of the first guidelines. And this is what we want to collect, but in a more professional way, Dr. Musalam, this time, on what the impact and in which countries this has been adopted. We are very excited because, as it was already said, it speaks for everyone. It is, I would say, I called it a doctor's friendly. Dr. Musalat said it speaks for all. Yes, because in a lot of countries with huge populations, the, the patients are not treated in specialized centers or even by hematologists, but by the community doctor, by the family doctor. And this should be able to address the needs of, of the doctor. However, I would like to just state that for TIF, since its establishment, we can only accept one kind of guideline for all patients across the world, because each patient needs to receive the best possible care, and TIF would never accept guidelines of a second class 
recommendation or a different kind of recommendations for the people who live in a poorer country or with less robust healthcare infrastructure. TIFF's policy is guidelines for all, and the effort should be there that the governments have the responsibility to adopt the best possible care for the patient, whether they are in a, a developing economy or whether in a highly robust healthcare infrastructure. And together with the guidelines, TIFF is striving for universal health coverage because that's the element in the healthcare system that will contribute to adopting guidelines. No chronic disease can be addressed appropriately and effectively in any country unless the patient is being covered financially and disease-specific program in the context of a healthcare system. In those places where there is no universal health coverage and no disease-specific programs, the patients cannot be effectively managed. And therefore, together with the guidelines that we have a huge, important tool now, we strive also for the United Nations SGD goals, which one of the most important is universal health coverage in every country. So thank you for giving us this opportunity. And also, last but not least, the other exciting is that this guideline addresses also the integration of new of innovation, of new innovative drugs, of looking at the pathophysiology in a different way. And we were very blessed to have advances in this area in recent years. Therefore, this book also integrates and evolves new drugs and innovation into its content. Thank you very much. Dr. Eletherio, I feel like you have read my mind just now because that was the exact question I want to ask. As the thalassemia community is international and different places have different resource availabilities as well as different cultural norms and expectations, you have answered that beautifully. And thank you on behalf of the care providers of thalassemia. And I'm sure from patients all over the world, we thank you for your for the insight as well as the direction that we should be heading in. So now I'm going to turn the question to Dr. Musalam then, is that from a guideline development point of view, with TIFF's goals and missions having set out and having been elaborated by Dr. Letherio, how do you practically implement a, a what I call a one-tier guideline as opposed to having multi-tier or two-tier guidelines? How do you balance between the idealism with the pragmatism? Obviously, it's always a tough task. It's a challenging task. As, as physicians and scientists, we always try to give guidelines based on best available evidence. Now, in some instances, health economic studies are part of the evidence. So if those are available and they suggest that one thing is more economically cost effective than others, then that obviously is integrated. But we try as much as we can not to provide the algorithms or protocols based on our expectations of availability of certain assessments or certain drugs in one country over the other, because as uh, Dr. Andrulla said, we expect that every patient has the right to access to all these conventional and novel advances. But just to be able to, at the end of the day, this document is also a guide for our physicians, the colleagues, which sometimes they need to make a decision if something is not available. 
Uh, we try to highlight those uh, factors that could be different between different countries based on resources and capabilities. And you would see that many of the algorithms have options. So we go with the algorithm and saying this is how it should be, but in case you need to what we call prioritize management, because sometimes that's not an issue always for resource limited regions. Sometimes even in resource capable regions, you have different reasons why you need to prioritize management, uh, capacity, capability, availability of staff. For example, in thalassemia, we need to measure iron. Is it serum ferritin? Is it MRI? It's not always a matter of the cost of MRI. Sometimes you have a busy hospital that can give you the next appointment in six to seven months. So how, what do you do about that? So we always try to give that uh, second option or the alternate pathway in case you have a roadblock, whether that's um, an issue of access or affordability or just simply a logistic reason or a patient preference sometimes that could tell you that you need to go in a different direction as a doctor. So when that is the case, we try to provide such. And that's exactly the reason why we change the format of the guideline to talk about the pathophysiology, anemia, iron overload, and all the options that you can have to manage it with rather than speak about each management option as if it's a given, it's available. Wow, Dr. Musalam, thank you so much. I wish other clinicians were able to hear this, and, and I hope they do, because this is actually amazing advice. It's beyond guidelines. It's excellent clinical judgment, as I would say. I'm just grateful that the guidelines are for every patient globally because the healthcare disparity is glaring and patients often talk about when there's a problem, talk about solutions, but then a patient in a certain developing country can't access medication. So I just think that topic comes up a lot among patients. And if you don't have the right information, you can't advocate for yourself. So I really encourage patients and their physicians to get a hold of these guidelines. I think that Loris touched on a very important point that the guidelines and the implementation and adoption of guidelines is actually a huge contribution to the sustainability of the healthcare systems because they don't spend money on something that will not work or is not effective. They will prevent complications and morbidities and that is a contribution towards the sustainability and resilience of the healthcare systems and the poorer economies need to take this on board that treating well a patient is uh, towards the advantage of the cost and not towards being a costly disease. Thank you. Thank you. In closing, what is next on the horizon for TIFF and what are you looking forward to as your next project? Oh, we are looking forward, first of all, to the establishment of the program of uh, dissemination of these and also in the context of webinars to actually explain how to use the content like Dr. Mosalam hopefully will contribute in these webinars because it's always nice to bring doctors from different regions of the world and introduce them into the book. But as new insights for Thalassemia International Federation, we are looking forward for the non-transfusion-dependent alpha thalassemia to complete this, let's say, allow me package of information, but also to the nutrition guidelines. We are just in the process of publishing a new guideline for the doctors in nutrition for the first time ever. So we give a lot of attention on that. And of course, a lot of other educational programs that we have on our electronic academy, the last one being the Tiflix, very much resembling what we call the Netflix that we all know about. We are referring to our new educational platform as Tiflix, and there you can 
have a rich resource of information obtained from webinars and international experts by name, by thematology, and a lot of other things that will come up. We are looking forward to serving the patient in as many ways as possible. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It was an honor speaking with both of you. And on behalf of patients, thank you for your endless contributions to the global thalassemia community. Yes. And on behalf of uh, all the healthcare providers uh, in thalassemia community, I thank both of you for providing us with a wonderful preview and highlight of the new TIF NTDT guideline. And I look forward to the official screening of the NTDT guideline in Malaysia. We look forward to meeting you there. Thank you so much. That's all for today's episode. Again, I'm your host, Dr. Kevin Kuo, and I'd like to personally thank you for listening to ThalPals, the Alpha Beta Revolution. Don't forget to hit that follow button in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. Share the show with members of the thalassemia community. ThalPals, the Alpha Beta Revolution, is made possible by Agios Pharmaceuticals, Inc. Visit agios.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time on Thou Pals, the Alpha Beta Revolution. Bye, everybody.